Thank you, Tim, for reading our scripture tonight. Thank you for being here. We're glad that you were able to be here tonight. We're glad that we have the opportunity to come back together on the first day of the week to worship God. We're very thankful for those of you who are visiting. As always, we invite you to please come back. We'd love to have you. We're so grateful for the many, many visitors that come our way each week, and we're blessed. And we've had some who have identified with us and are now part of our church family. And so we're glad to be a part of, lost my train of thought. <laughs> I got away from out in the assembly, and so I was waving back and kind of lost my way. But nonetheless, uh, hey Jude. We are glad you're here, and we have had a number of folks that have identified with us, and we're very grateful for their willingness to be a part of our church family, and we hope and pray that if you're looking for a church home, that you'll consider the work here. I do want to mention, tonight, we are going to be looking at Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, and we have in the foyer a list of the verses that we're going to be memorizing this year, 52 verses. And Sandra Halfegger caught me just a moment ago in the hallway and said that she has already committed to memory Ezekiel 18, 20, Daniel 2, verse 44. Had somebody else tell me that Daniel 2, 44 is a very tough verse to commit to memory. And, uh, but listen, you can get it. I have faith in you. And next week, the Lord willing, we'll be looking at Daniel 2, 44. But one of the things that we did, I've added... I went back and added a tagline to all the verses because I know that there are some who may not necessarily understand the thrust of the passage or maybe what we're really accentuating in these verses. And so I've gone back and put a tagline with every verse. And so if you don't have a copy of that, I would encourage you to grab a copy tonight. They're in the foyer. There should be plenty for everyone. If we run out, we'll print more. But again, uh, we appreciate so much you being a part of this. We're very thankful for the opportunity to grow and to study together. And tonight, as we look at Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, I've got several things that I want to read to you that I think help to maybe put into, put into perspective what we're going to be talking about. And so tonight in our study, we're going to be dealing with the subject of original sin. And what we want to ask tonight is, what does the Bible have to say about this doctrine of original sin. And really it might be, might be good to just ask this question. When we are born into the world, are we born as sinners? Are we born as sinful people? Because that really is, is the thrust of what we're going to be talking about. Most people in the religious world today believe that we bear the sin of Adam that we have been tainted because of his fall in the garden. And so, when you look at this doctrine, it really goes back to not long after the first century. Some would classify it as emerging during the period of the church fathers. And uh, that, that followed the apostolic age to either A.D. 451 or A.D. 787. Augustine and John Calvin basically made this doctrine popular, particularly John Calvin. 
And so what I want to do is read for you some statements that I think will help to put this into perspective. And then we want to look at what the Bible has to say because we're going to look at a couple of proof texts that have been used. And then what we want to do is rebut that from Scripture. So let me just begin. The Augsburg Confession of Faith in 1530. Lutheranism's creed asserted the following. All men born according to nature, are born with sin, that is, without the fear of God, without confidence towards God, and that this original disease or flaw is truly a sin, bringing condemnation and also eternal death to those who are not reborn through baptism and the Holy Spirit. And then let me read for you another statement, and this is found in a classic work, by T.W. Brents in his book, The Gospel Plan of Salvation. He quotes in his book, The Presbyterian Confession of Faith. And here's what he quotes. By this sin, eating the forbidden fruit, they, that is our first parents, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin, and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. They being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed. And the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. Brents goes on to quote another man by the name of Mr. Jeter. And Mr. Jeter was a Baptist from Virginia. Here's what he says about infants. Infants dying in infancy must, by some process, known or unknown, be freed from depravity, morally renewed or regenerated. Now listen to this. Or they can never be saved never participate in the joys of heaven. Now you just let that sink in for a moment. I want to I just follow this up by making this statement. After studying for some time with regard to this doctrine of original sin, one of the things that stands out to me is an old adage that has been popularized down through the years. And that is, if you tell one lie, you have to tell another, don't you? And so when you take a verse out of its context, or when you incorrectly interpret a verse, what do you have to do? You have to incorrectly interpret other verses to buttress your doctrine or proposition. Now, let me read another statement and I mentioned a moment ago this idea that infants dying in sin can never be saved, can never participate in the joys of heaven. This is really the originating cause for what is typically known as infant baptism. Now let me ask this question. Is infant baptism commanded or sanctioned by the apostles? Did Jesus ever teach it? No, Jesus said, He that believes and is baptized 
shall be saved. An infant does not have that mental ability. And so, you have infant baptism. And then note this statement. The Calvinist asked the question, in light of the Scriptures that declare man's true nature as being utterly lost and incapable, how is it possible for anyone to choose or desire God? Now note their answer. Here's what they say. He cannot. Therefore, God must predestined. So think about that. Now you have, now you have infant baptism coupled with predestination. Now, very quickly, before we look at some of the proof text, I want to just ask you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. I want to deal very fast, very quickly, with this idea of predestination. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, Paul said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. The idea of predestination or foreordination in this context is simply this. What Paul is saying Paul is not teaching that God has already predestined certain individuals to be saved or lost. What he is teaching is that God has identified a class of people who will be saved. That class of people are those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who accept the terms of the gospel, those who obey the gospel of Christ, they enjoy the blessings of redemption. In other words, that redemptive plan that was drawn up before time began. Now, one other verse very quickly. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter 1 verse 18, Peter would write, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in the last times for you. God foreordained before time began to send the Christ into the world, that is the Messiah. When man transgressed the Garden of Eden, or rather transgressed the law of God in the Garden of Eden, God began unveiling that plan. Now, God has endowed us with the freedom of volition, hasn't He? We have the capacity to choose right or wrong. We can, we can follow what the Bible says or we can reject that. God in His infinite wisdom recognizing that in giving man the ability to make choices, man would ultimately make the wrong choice, thereby bringing sin into the world. Therefore, God had a plan in place so that when man fell, the crown of his creation transgressed his law, there would be a plan in place to redeem the human family. So when we talk about predestination, God has predestined or foreordained that all who are in Christ Jesus will be saved. But nowhere in Scripture does He teach that God has selected certain people to be saved and lost. That's what they're talking about. That's not what the Bible teaches. 
And one of the things that they would appeal to is the sovereignty of God. I would grant that God is sovereign. He is the ruler over all things. That He is in absolute control, but that doesn't mean that He has created us as puppets, but rather He has given us the freedom of choice, hasn't He? Now, having said that, let me call attention to a couple of proof texts with regard to original sin. The first would be found in Psalm 51. Psalm 51. What I want to do is read for you Psalm 51 from the New International Version. The reason is because the New, the New International Version is more of a thought process translation. In other words, what they're trying to do is capture in their minds the thrust of what the writers say. The inherent danger in that is sometimes when you do that, when you engage in that kind of translation, there's the tendency to weave into those translations your doctrine, your thinking. And so, in terms of the most literal, old, well, really, the most literal text that I know of in our modern translation would be the 1901 American Standard Version. It is the most literal in the Hebrew and the Greek in our text. And so, if you're a really good student of the Scripture, you'll want to get a copy of the 1901 American Standard. Now, there are a number of good translations out there. I, I, I'm very grateful for the number of translations that we have. I think there are any number that are, that are good, but I typically use the New King James Version. When I was growing up, I used the King James Version, and as I got older, I started using the New King James uh, I'd have no problem using the ESV, the English Standard Version, uh, the New American Standard. I think they're both good, good translations. I just use this because I'm used to it. So listen to Psalm 51. David here, this is a penitential psalm. And David, having transgressed God's law with regard to his relationship with Bathsheba and killing Uriah the Hittite on the front line of battle, here's what David said. In verse 4, he said, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Now, listen to how the NIV renders Psalm 51.5. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. I tend to think that there were a number of individuals who had a Calvinist background that were a part of this translation process. Had to be. Now, the New King James Version reads in Psalm 51 at verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin my mother conceived me. Now, is David saying here that he was born as a quote-unquote sinner? I don't think that's what he's saying. I think, number one, we have to realize that many of the Psalms, they're very poetic in nature. Furthermore, you have a lot of hyperbole in the Psalms. But I think really when you look at what the text has to say, what David is saying is simply this. I was born into a world of sin, into a sinful environment. Sin, sin is identified by John as the transgression of the law. 1 John 3 verse 4. So let me ask this question. What sin 
has a baby committed. The picture on the screen tonight of that beautiful, innocent baby. Who could imagine that a beautiful, innocent, pure baby would be born in sin? Can you imagine that? I mean, can you wrap your mind around somebody believing that a child as beautiful as, as that has been born into sin? I don't think the Scriptures teach it. I don't think Jesus sanctioned it. The apostles never approved of that kind of thinking. Now, note also over in Psalm 58, another passage of Scripture. In Psalm 58, verse 3, some would press this literally. But again, we're talking about hyperbole and similes, figures of speech. David here is talking about the conduct of the wicked. And in the Psalms, sometimes we read of the imprecatory Psalms, where the writer is asking God to judge those who have been against him. So in Psalm 58 at verse 3, David said, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Now, if we're going to press this literally, here's the question. Are we born in sin, or as soon as we're born, do we begin immediately speaking lies? Well, you know the answer to that. That, that would be absurd, wouldn't it? And so, then let me give you a New Testament verse very quickly. Look over in the book of Ephesians in chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul here is talking about, he's writing to the church at Ephesus. We just read a moment ago, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. And in light of God's glorious plan of redemption, Paul would say in Ephesians 1, 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He has made us accepted in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Drop down, look at chapter 2. In chapter 2, Paul said, And you He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh. Paul here identifying himself with his readers, isn't he? saying that he too had been caught up in sin. And so he said, Among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. Now, some would lift this word nature out of its context, and they would say, okay, there it is right there. We have a sinful nature. We were born in sin. We have a sinful nature. The word nature here carries with it the idea of that which occurs over a period of time. In other words, here is somebody who engages in sin for a period of time, and over the course of that time, it becomes, as we would say, natural. It becomes a habit. And that's all Paul is saying here, that we have sinned so long, we have engaged in doing what is wrong for a long period of time, and it has become habitual to us. It is second nature. Far from the idea that we're born 
with a sinful nature, that we're born inclined to sin. I don't think the Bible teaches that. I mentioned 1 John chapter 3. Look very quickly at 1 John 3, if you would. In 1 John chapter 3, John said in verse 4, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. Now, the word sin means a missing of the mark. And the idea is that those who engage in sin, they fall short of the glory of God, don't they? That's what Paul said in Romans 3, verse 23. All have sinned. So, sin then is the transgression of the law. As I said a moment ago, what sin has an infant committed? Well, none. Now, I would grant that as a child grows, that child reaches an accountable age, doesn't he? Or she. But to espouse the idea that we're born in sin, that we have this corrupted nature, this sinful nature, that is not found in Scripture. Now, go back with me, if you would, and look at Ezekiel chapter 18. In Ezekiel chapter 18, listen to what the prophet said in verse 4. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Is he not teaching here personal accountability and responsibility? Yes, he is. Are we not all accountable for our own conduct? Well, sure we are. Now drop down, look at verse 20. In verse 20, Ezekiel said, The soul who sins shall die. All right, the penalty for sin is death, Romans 6.23, right? The prophet here acknowledging the fact that the soul who engages in sin shall die. In other words, be separated from God. But then listen to what he says. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father. How much plainer could it be? Do we bear the guilt of Adam? Now, let me just pause there for a minute. We are not born with the sin of Adam. We're not born as sinners, per se. We're not born with a sinful nature. We are born into a world filled with sin. Because of what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden, what we suffer today are the consequences of their actions. In other words, when they transgressed the law of God in the Garden of Eden, you remember God said, in Ezekiel, or rather in Genesis chapter 2, that when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what did he say? He said, you will surely die. In Genesis chapter 3, when they partook of that forbidden tree of knowledge, did they face the death penalty? Yes, they did. They began to die physically, and they began to die spiritually. They died spiritually. That's why you have in Genesis 3.15 the unveiling of the promised seed. God's answer to sin. So, when sin made its entrance into the world, two things occurred. Well, really three. First, man died spiritually, thereby necessitating a Redeemer. Secondly, however, when you think about what occurred in the garden, physical death came upon the human family, didn't it? Paul said, Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Look at Romans 5, verse 12 very quickly. I want you to see these verses with me. In Romans 5, at verse 12. 
Paul said, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Today, death is a reality because of what? Because man transgressed the law of God in the Garden of Eden. We suffer the consequences of what occurred in Eden. Now, the Bible tells us that when Jesus died on Calvary's cross, He destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil. That didn't mean, when the writer said that, he wasn't saying that death is now nullified, we'll never die again, physically speaking. What he is saying is that Jesus destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and ultimately man will reign over death, won't he? When the Lord Jesus comes, the tombs will be opened, the dead will be raised, and we'll go home to be with God. And so as Jesus said in John chapter 11, I'm the resurrection and the life. Now, look at the continuation, Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. He's saying in a very emphatic way, look, your child does not bear your sin. Your you as a child do not bear the sin, you don't bear the sins of your parents. Your parents don't bear the consequences of your sins, do they? But note, the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself. The wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. The writer here is simply saying that we are personally accountable or responsible for God. For what? For our own actions, aren't we? Now, let me just add this very quickly. It might be the case that because of the conduct of our parents or grandparents, we too suffer the consequences of their actions, don't, don't we? For example, a child who has parents that have engaged in substance abuse or alcoholism, they're going to be deprived of a lot of things and they're going to have to suffer the consequences of their parents' actions, aren't they? They're not going to be held accountable for what their parents have done, but they suffer the consequences. By the same token, we're not born in sin, but we suffer the consequences of what occurred in the Garden of Eden. Now, let's think for just a minute about the soul of the Spirit that has been given unto us by God. Who's the author or the father of our spirit, that is the inward man. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9, that God is the Father of our spirit. Now look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7. Note, if you would, what Solomon said with regard to that soul or spirit. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, or rather chapter 12. In verse 7, Solomon said, at death, the dust will return to the earth as it was. And the Spirit, listen to him, will return to God who gave it. The Spirit that has been given to man is just as pure as its divine source. Does that make sense? God is the author of our spirit, isn't he? God is the one that has deposited an eternal spirit or soul in my body. 
Now, if God is pure, can you imagine God the Father placing within us a tainted spirit? A sinful spirit? Of course not. Doesn't make sense, does it? Now, look at Matthew chapter 18 for a moment. Matthew 18. In Matthew chapter 18, listen to what Jesus said with regard to children. You remember they, that is the disciples, had come to Jesus. And they wanted to know who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them. And here's what he said, Assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as a little child, you will, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Seems to me that one of the problems the apostles had, the disciples had, was pride. They were, they were jockeying for position in the kingdom of God. And so in an effort to offset their pride and their desire for prominence in the kingdom, Jesus took a small child, placed him in their midst, and said, look, you see the humility and nature of this small child? That's the same kind of spirit you need to enter the kingdom of God. Now turn over to chapter 19. In chapter 19, you remember in verse 13, little children were brought to Jesus that He might put His hands on them and pray. The disciples, however, were said to have rebuked Him. And listen to what Jesus said, Let the little children come to Me. And do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Now think about that for a minute. If a child is tainted by sin, if a child is born in, the, in, in sin, as is alleged by those who believe Calvinism, do you really think Jesus would say that the kingdom, that, the, that, that He would speak of little children? And the fact that of them is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, listen to him again. Little children, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, their purity, their, their humility, their childlike faith are components characteristic of kingdom living, aren't they? Now, children are safe. In other words, Jesus said they're a part of the kingdom, aren't they? They're in a safe condition. Why? Because they haven't reached that accountable age. When they reach that accountable age, then it's time to obey the gospel, isn't it? I, I said a minute ago, we have often said, when you teach one lie, you've got to teach another to back it up or to support the previous lie. When you start looking at the, very, the various tenets of Calvinism, the bottom line is it doesn't add up. It's not biblical. It's not scriptural. From predestination to infant baptism to, to the idea that that we as members of the human family are born as sinners? That's not biblical. What we want to do is follow Scripture. One of the verse, very quickly, I want to just point out, look at Romans chapter 7. 
In Romans chapter 7, Paul speaks of being alive without the law on one occasion. I said a moment ago that children are in a safe condition. In Romans chapter 7, in verse 9, Paul said, I was alive once without the law. When was that, Paul? I think it was before he reached the age of accountability. He said, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. That is, when he reached an accountable age, then he needed to do something about his relationship to God, didn't he? Now during that period of time, prior to the establishment of the church, they lived under the Mosaic dispensation. They were born into, they were born into that family. Today we're born into the kingdom of God by the new birth. All right, next week in our study, we're going to be looking at Daniel 2, verse 44. And I would encourage you, over the course of the next few days, commit that verse to memory. Jared and I are going to try to work in tandem on Wednesday nights. He's going to try to emphasize the verse of the week. This week, it was Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20 that we were dealing with. There are a lot of other things that we could say about Calvinism. One of the things that we plan to do on Wednesday night is to deal in more, well, we're really going to deal in depth more with some of the various things that have been taught and look at them in light of Scripture, Calvinism being one. Tonight, what we want to do is offer the invitation. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian and you have reached that accountable age, you understand that Christ died for your sins, you recognize that sin has separated you from God, Without Christ, you're without hope and without God in this world. Your desire is to obey the gospel. Well, you can do that tonight. What would you need to do? Well, come in simple trusting faith, believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Repent of your sins, as was encouraged on Pentecost Day, Acts 2, verse 38. Confess with your mouth what you believe in your heart, Romans chapter 10, 9 and 10. Be buried with Christ in baptism so that all your sins can be washed away, Acts 22, 16. When you do that, what does God do? Number one, He forgives you. Number two, He places you in the kingdom. If you're faithful until death, the promise is the crown of life. If you're here tonight, and maybe your life is not what it ought to be as a child of God. Maybe you haven't been faithful, and you want the prayers of the church, we'll be happy to pray with you and for you as we stand and sing.